G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. So read. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song and shout for joy, you who were never in labour. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife, deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. To me this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city... Lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make you your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established, Tyranny will be far from you, you will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed, it will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flames and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Then turning to Luke 22 from verse 39.
Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and praying the Son of Man with a kiss. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered no more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief, they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked. This morning, Luke 22 confronts us with a challenge to nothing less than wholehearted commitment uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ in imitation of Him, in adoration of His absolutely wholehearted heart and soul, body and mind, commitment to the saving works of God, though it would cost him his very life. Um, now, as we approach that theme, could we um, take ourselves back 50, 60 years uh, and consider this quote from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, he said these words to the Southern Methodist University in 1966, although uh, the um, they seem to be attributed to all sorts of places, so I suspect he said them many times. Uh, but he said it, he certainly said it there to that Southern Methodist University in '66, two years before uh, he himself was assassinated. Uh, so, Luther, if a man has not discovered something that he would die for, he isn't fit to live. If a man has not discovered something that he would die for, he isn't fit to live. He words. If a man has not discovered something that he would die for, he isn't fit to live. And they're good words, and I think they get us thinking about our lives, what really matters to us, be misapplied or misappropriated. So let me just say, uh, the context there is everything with Luther King Jr.'s words. King was not speaking, was he, uh, to an uncertain teenager seeking career advice or feeling at a bit of a loss for life direction. Uh, King was not speaking uh, to people who felt that their minds were against them and the clouds were coming in over them and felt hollow and worthless and, and a burden if a man has not discovered something that he would die for, he's not fit to live. You can picture his audience, can't you? Martin Luther King Jr. King spoke to African-American men and women whom he called to stand in a movement there in the, uh, in the States in the 60s against segregation, against discrimination and whose wholehearted allegiance would be 
undermined by all sorts of things in life, compromise and and confusion and complacency and and many other things besides. Uh, May I read the the quote in a little bit more context and I hope we'll see some more of the links between Luther King Jr.'s address and Luke chapter 22 and our our topic for today before we turn to it. Um, So uh, Luther King Jr., let me also say that if we're going, if we're to go on in the days ahead, we must continue to challenge the remaining vestiges of segregation and discrimination with non-violent direct action. And we need the support of all will as we develop a non-violent assault on the evils of segregation and discrimination. I would like to say a few words about this philosophy. First, I'd like to say that non-violence, I am convinced, is the most potent weapon available to oppressed people in that struggle for freedom and human dignity. It has a way of disarming the opponent. It exposes his moral defences. It weakens his morale. And at the same time, it works on his conscience and he just doesn't know what to do. If he doesn't beat you, wonderful. If he beats you you develop a quiet courage of accepting blows without retaliating. If he doesn't put you in jail, wonderful. Nobody with any sense loves to go to jail. But if he puts you in jail and transform it from a dungeon of shame into a haven of freedom and human dignity, even if he tries to kill you, you develop the inner conviction that there are some things are so... So precious, some things so eternally true, some things so right that they are worth dying for. And if a man has not discovered something that he would die for, he isn't fit to live. The non-violent method says that there is a power in this approach precisely because it has a way of disarming the opponent and exposing his moral defences. Brothers and sisters, King was calling his fellows to wholehearted, body and soul, all in, might well cost your life kind of commitment. And it might cost their lives and their freedom. And for many of them, it did cost those things and their comforts. But didn't it also change the world? Let's pray as we come to Luke 22. Our Father God in heaven, uh, we do thank you very much actually for our brother Dr King and his courage uh, to not only uh, speak and teach and pray and preach in the name of Jesus, but to live out his, his preaching at great personal cost. What an example he left. Father, as we turn now to your words to us, the words of the eternal God, to humankind, we ask, may we begin to connect the dots between wholehearted obedience of Jesus to your will and its implications in our modern lives, in our context, in our day, facing our struggles. And Father, even amongst us, for each of us, our context is subtly different. There are nuances, it's personal, uh, but may we learn, Father, not only wholehearted commitment to Jesus for myself, but learn to support and encourage and inspire one another as well as disciples of Jesus. And Father, as we saw last week, 
may we also learn how to strengthen one another. For we stumble and we falter, even as we follow our perfect, righteous, spotless Lord Jesus. And in his name we ask for your enabling in that walk today, please. Amen. Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, have you got it there? I'd like to just, um, could we have a look at verse 61 to begin? It's sort of a bit of a way into the, the passage proper. Um, it's among, I think, what some of the most, um, I want to say vivid, but it's more than vivid, troubling uh, in a way, verses in all of Luke's gospel. I think it's because it is so vivid, I can picture it, I can see it there. It's one of those verses that I see immediately um, when it's read to me and as Alex read it to us a moment ago, it's actually quite a surprising verse in that it sort of intrudes into a scene that's about Peter in that section and suddenly Jesus is right there. So it's quite a, it's a vivid thing. I wonder, are you like me? Do you see Jesus in that moment, verse 61, where he turns to Peter and looks straight at him? Do you conjure an image in your mind? Uh, but also I think I find it troubling because... I don't quite know what that look was supposed to convey. Have you wondered about that? Is Jesus disappointed as he looks across to Peter? Is he condemning or negative? You've done the wrong thing, Peter. Uh, Wounded, is he, and I've wondered about this, Uh, Well, is he concerned or compassionate? But is he, and this is the bit that I've wondered about, is Jesus beginning to feel in his human nature the dereliction, the abandonment, the aloneness that in just a few hours' time he will give voice to from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he beginning to experience in the human sphere as one of his closest friends now has even abandoned him? That bitter and awful foretaste of what's to come at the cross... Verse 59, have a look from verse 59, Uh, about an hour later, another of the people around Peter asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and here's verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. What do you make of that look from Jesus toward Peter? Uh, Friends, today we're going to explore three enemies, I want to say, uh, to wholehearted commitment to our loving Lord. Complacency and confusion and compromise Uh, Those seem the themes that, as I read it, as Jesus heads towards the cross now in Luke's Gospel, it's it's just a matter of hours, uh, God's Word presses us as readers, as followers of Jesus, um, with questions of what we are willing to live for and die for, and how we're willing to live. Uh, And Luke's story illustrates these three enemies, not just battling against our convictions, but absolutely threatening our commitment to our Lord. And I want to say uh, even deeper, not just our commitment in theory, but our character, our confidence, our comfort uh, as we believe in the Lord. This stuff runs deep. As it, it looms over us, I'm calling it simple complacency. 
Uh, let's read from verse 39. And I wonder, would you agree, is complacency a fair description of what's going on there among the disciples or am I being a little bit unkind? Let's read from verse 39 of Luke chapter 22. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. What do you think? Is it a bit unfair to call it complacency there of the disciples? Verse 45, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow, when we know why they're weary, don't we? We've seen them there at the Last Supper, agonising over uh, betrayal and, and so forth, understandably weary and sorrowful. And yet in this passage, the contrast there is with Jesus, isn't it? Uh, the contrast is stark. Jesus praying for his life, verse 43, in great anguish. The contrast is with Jesus pleading with his God. Not that God's plans would be derailed just for his ease, just for his benefit, but Lord, if there's another way. And the cup, uh, take this cup from me, uh, yet not my will but yours be done. The cup there, in case you're unfamiliar, it's a, it's a rich but... Uh, awful Old Testament metaphor. It's an image of a, a deep and a dreadful wine that under the judgment of God, usually the nations, sometimes Israel, are made, are made to drink as a judgment. It's there in the Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk. Jesus sees it coming, yet not my will, that yours be done. Daryl Bock puts it like this, if you've got Jesus pleading on the one hand, the arrest provides God's answer. Jesus is going to suffer. Friends, may I suggest that um, you and I may be kind of similar to the disciples here in, in two respects. Firstly, the obvious one, we do become weary and we do become exhausted and we do become full of sorrow sometimes and full of concerns and and those things are all true. We are very much like the disciples. Not always. We're not always weighed down like that, but sometimes we are. And sometimes that um, uh, burdens us, tugs at us. But a second way in which I think we're sometimes like the disciples is that I don't think the disciples quite saw that it was coming quite so soon. Would you agree? It seems that Jesus knew that it was coming and soon, but it seems that the disciples, were they thinking maybe it's a little bit further off? With hindsight, I'm sure they looked back on that evening and saw it perfectly, but are we like them? Do we become complacent 
in our commitment, wholehearted commitment to the Lord? Do we delay? Is there a, a sort of a spiritual drowsiness in us at times? Not because we don't believe that Jesus is Lord. We do believe that he's Lord. We think he's spectacular. We think he's our wonderful, saving uh, Lord. We believe it, but we become spiritually drowsy because, well, the sorrows of life and the slowness of change and things don't seem so urgent. It never seems quite the time. So may I gently ask, are there perhaps some spiritual matters in your life that have just been lurking, undealt with for a very long time indeed. Slowness of change, the sorrows of life. Perhaps uh, someone that you should have, should have reconciled with long, long ago. But you just never got around to it. Uh, perhaps some sin that you've been meaning to take more seriously, but you've always not exactly told yourself, I'll get to that tomorrow but functionally that's the way that you've approached it. Perhaps a long-term character trait or something that you know you should have addressed long ago. It's, it's as if it's in your genes, it's kind of how you grew up. On the one hand here, we see the beauty in this little vignette of Jesus, his self-giving, his total surrender to the plans of God, contrasted with these sleepy souls. Which are we more like? Secondly, confusion. Firstly, complacency. Secondly, confusion. And here, actually, I think, as we move on from verse 47 and following, I think Dr King's comments really come to the fore because Martin Luther King wasn't just concerned with winning the battle for black America no matter what the cost or no matter how it had to be played. No, he wanted to be able to answer the question, yes, but... But if we win, when we win, what sort of a world are we going to be left with? What sort of an America are we going to give birth to? It's a confusion here from verse 47 and following, not merely of panic, but of principle. What kind of a world are we going to give birth to? What kind of a kingdom will our living and our dying bring to life? Verse 47, so while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. And I like the way one commentator puts that actually, uh, this is your hour, but darkness only gets an hour. Jesus gets forever. There's a comfort in that, I think. Wholehearted commitment to Jesus isn't just about our confession. It's about the character of his kingdom that we see as he touches that man's ear and restores him and heals him. Have I been leading a rebellion? Is that what I've been about? 
Uh, may I give a quick illustration, um, completely off topic? Um, my friend Matt uh, runs a, uh, a mental health first aid course, which you know we're considering running later in the year um, here at church as a, a service to ourselves, but also to the community around us for any who would like to come along and, and learn about that. So my friend Matt runs that, and here's an illustration, which I'm not sure is part of the course, but just in conversation we've talked about it. He has an illustration of a ladder, a ladder. Um, now, parents... Uh, he would say, although it's not just a parent's thing, uh, parents are often faced with a teenage son or daughter um, who is in all sorts of distress and pain and conflict in their uh, teenage years and it's like they're at the top of the ladder swaying about there. Uh, at the top of the ladder, the teenager is and uh, now as a parent, you have a decision to make as to what you do, how you proceed in your parenting as that teenager is swaying violently at the top of the ladder. What do you do? How are you going to deal with the situation? Everything about their action and their words might be screaming at you to get up there with them. Join them at, that, at the top of that ladder. Meet them right where they are. They're rocking about. They're in distress. You need to climb the ladder and be with them but isn't the better place to be holding the ladder with your two feet, hard though it might be, firmly planted on the ground and your arms, arms of steadiness in the situation. You could climb the ladder with swords and ears and lords should we strike, do you see? Now, brothers and sisters, I think we need to ask ourselves, not just are we a force for calm in all of our relationships, but in terms of the character of the kingdom that Jesus means to, to, to grow, to build, to introduce, to begin, we need to ask ourselves, am I known, are you known in your personal life as one who stands at the bottom of the ladder, fir feet firmly planted, arms of steadiness, in the service of the Lord Jesus? Am I, are you, one who is known by the character of Jesus, who even heals the very ones who were sent to arrest him? Am I, and are you, one who faces um, the vicious and mean things and even the betrayer's kiss, uh, not with spinelessness, I don't want to say spinelessness, but the strength to not fight on the terms that are flawed from the start? Or are we, functionally, a bit confused about which kingdom we're in and whose hour it is? Husbands with our words and our warmth towards our wives. Uh, workers with our work for your boss or your words about your boss when your boss can't hear. Um, friends and family members, as we choose whether or not to share that rather unflattering story or to repeat that little tale or uh, whatever, it, which would hurt as much as any sword would. What is the character of the kingdom that Jesus brought? And so what is the character of my contribution to it? Wholehearted commitment. And in the midst of it all, Jesus asking the question, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So we've got complacency and confusion and thirdly, compromise. Wholehearted commitment and the, the blunt 
impact of compromise from verse 54. Let's read those difficult words again. In seizing him, as in seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And Daryl Bock describes that, that word there, the term for wept, frequently refers to weeping over the dead. Intense emotion is expressed here. Peter felt instant remorse over his denials. His sin of denial crushed his spirit. Brothers and sisters, what do you make of the, the look there in verse 61? Peter, among Jesus' dearest friends, had denied his name three times. In case you missed it last week, it's exactly as Jesus foretold it from verse 34 of the same, uh, the same chapter that we're in. Jesus answered, uh, verse 34, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And I think we're to imagine that when Jesus heard the rooster and when Peter heard it, for just a moment in all the world, there's only the two of them able to see one another. There's me and there's Jesus and he's looking straight at me. Have you ever felt that way in your Christian life, I wonder? Friends, what do you make of that look in verse 61? Is it pained? Is Jesus pained in that look or is it compassion for Peter, knowing that he will come back? Or is it, is it grieved? Is he angry with Peter? Friends, I must say, I really don't know, and the text doesn't tell us, and neither do the other Gospels explain it for us. Perhaps it's all four. It probably is all four. But I'll tell you what I'm confident of. I believe Luke has placed Peter and Jesus side by side here for the very same reason that he's been doing it really throughout this section. I mean, it's Peter and Jesus one way or another throughout this section, isn't it? Not so much to highlight Peter's failure, but to highlight Jesus' faithfulness. What do I mean by that? Well, picture it in your mind's eye. Where do you see Peter? And where do you see Jesus? Peter is there in the courtyard, isn't he? He's cloaked in darkness. He's surrounded by uh, those who would, not just would, who did, help to destroy the Son of Man. And he's weeping in that tragic scene, weeping bitter tears of regret for things that he cannot take back. You can see Peter there. Uh, Jesus, now how do you imagine him in your mind's eye? He's inside, in the light, 
uh, giving himself wholly and solely to the plans of God, which we know will cost him his life. And I think it prompts the question, which one do you want for yourself? Which life do you want to pursue? Which life do you prize and see the value in? Which life do we prize and cherish and aspire to and admire to? Admire. I don't just mean for ourselves. It helps us to see Jesus, doesn't it? Doesn't Luke here help us to see Jesus, not at some distant remove, some far off place, but right there, knowing the cost of faithfulness in this life? I live my life, my compromised and confused, sometimes complacent life, and Jesus is right there. Is he full of compassion? You bet he is. Is he grieved and pained at times by how I live? You bet he is. His faithfulness to God's plan to save me is right there beside us. We live our lives in the presence of the saving Lord Jesus every day. Is that the effect of it? Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter and then Peter remembered. Brothers and sisters, we have a passage before us, not just about our wholehearted commitment, calling you to it, give yourself to it more. Don't we hold in our eyes an image of Jesus' wholehearted commitment to save us, to rescue us, the lengths that he was willing to go for you. And not a picture of complacency and confusion and compromise in the end, but a picture of compassion and concern. And yes, his coming crucifixion, but beyond that, his glory. Brothers and sisters, have we given our lives wholeheartedly to his kingdom? I put it to you that we could live and die for nothing greater, nothing more wonderful and beautiful, nothing more lasting and nothing more lovely. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we pray that in the darkness and confusion of this world, that Jesus would be our bright and shining light. May his compassion, his rich stores of compassion for us be our compass. May his proper sense of urgency and dedication, may they delight us and drive us also. May his personal concern for his beloved, flawed, sometimes crushed, but ultimately comforted disciples, may his concern for them remind us of his concern for us. He sees us, he saves us because he loves us. And Father, may we then be that kind of influence in our homes, in our friendships, in our workplaces, amongst our families. May we delight in Jesus. What a magnificent saviour we see shining brightly in that dark hour. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.